Sponsor StrongDM is secure infrastructure access for the modern stack. StrongDM proxies connections between your infrastructure and sysadmins, giving your IT team auditable, policy-driven, IAC-configurable access to whatever they need, wherever they are. Find out more at strongdm.com slash packetpushers. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today we're going to be talking about containers, but not just any containers, Windows containers. That's right. What did you think of all that, Ethan? Oh, come on, man. It's not even fair. <laughs> this was not my thing. <laughs> you know how you feel when I get into some, I don't know, BGP conversation with someone, you're like, oh, networking, fun. That was a little bit of me in this one because this Windows containers conversation, Ed, got super nerdy and deep talking about pipelines, the challenges of deploying various things in containers, the shortcomings thereof, and why ultimately containers may be worth the right answer for our guest. Yeah, and our guest is Sai Gunaranjan. He's a principal architect at a major healthcare company. And if you think you hear planes taking off, that's not his mind taking off. He actually does live near an airport, but his mind also was just going a million miles an hour and we were struggling to keep up. So enjoy this conversation with Sai. Well, Sai, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. In a few words, why don't you tell the good folks out there who you are and what you do? Hi, Ned. Hi, Ethan. So I'm Sai Gunaranjan. I'm a principal architect. I'm part of the cloud platform team that's responsible for Azure, Azure DevOps, and GitHub platform within the enterprise. Okay, gotcha. So Azure, building things out, working with Azure DevOps. And the reason we wanted to have you on the show is not just because you're working with all these cool technologies, but because you're working with Windows containers, which is, to me, just wild. The reason I even heard about this was because we had Kyler Middleton on uh, show 128, which we'll include a link on, and she was talking about DevOpsing all the things, and she mentioned you using Windows containers, like, for real. And once I recovered from my shock, I knew we had to have you on the show. So can you set this up for me, Sai? What was the original problem that Windows containers was meant to solve? The problem statement goes, by design, everything on public cloud is exposed to the internet. Uh, storage accounts, key vaults, container registries, and, and event hubs, and so on, which is not a good configuration to have. So all of these services are made private by you know either service endpoints or private endpoints, which then makes it extremely difficult to run DevOps on them because the public agents that Microsoft hosts or either GitHub or Azure DevOps, they don't have access to these resources. So we started to go down the route of having our own private DevOps agents. Uh, that, that works very well, but then the challenge is a, a traditional VM-based uh, DevOps or a, or a build agent, it becomes difficult to scale, it actually becomes difficult to maintain. So we actually wanted to look at containers as an alternative to run our DevOps jobs. So private containers within our own environment, within our own network, which then you know connect back into Azure DevOps or GitHub, and then they take up the build tasks, and then they, they actually run against the, 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 the private environments that we actually have. The other problem statement along with this is that it actually, uh, it gets very expensive when you start to have full-scale VMs running all the time and waiting for jobs. So having containers was more kind of a more reliable and a cost-saving approach that we wanted to go down. Okay, that was a lot of information. So let me back you up and we'll unpack <laughs> yeah. a little bit of that. Uh, the first point that I want to hammer home a little bit is what you said, that generally speaking, everything you deploy in the cloud is, is public by default. So if I spin up an Azure Key Vault, the connection endpoint for that is public. Anybody can connect with it. They have to have the right credentials, right? Yes. But 
the actual endpoint is available. So what you're saying is due to the, the industry you're in, you're in the healthcare industry, you need to be more secure. And so you want to take all these public endpoints and make them private, right? Yes. Okay. So that that's the first problem is you've made everything private. And then you mentioned public build agents. Where are these agents running and who's providing them? So making this pass services private, that, that solves one of the problems. Right? The second thing is when you start to try to run pipelines on these agents, the public build agents that Microsoft provides as part of the default access that we get on Azure DevOps or GitHub, they can't access them because now all of these are behind a firewall or are actually fully on a private network. Okay, I see. So those build agents that are kicked off by the pipeline, those aren't running inside your network. They're running just in the public internet and they can't get to these private endpoints. So suddenly, okay, that doesn't work. So the solution is to bring build agents inside the network. And you did that by, uh, were you spinning up virtual machines or containers? So initially, when we went down the route, we started to have virtual machines, VM scale set based virtual machines, which would register into Azure DevOps or GitHub. The app teams can then you know, assign tasks to those build pools, and then they actually have access to these resources to perform tasks against them, like either deployment or you know configuration or whatever. Right, right. And then the other thing you mentioned was cost. And running those VM build agents, uh, I guess the VMs are on all the time, right? True. So yeah, so initially, like I think sometime back, uh, Microsoft never had an option to actually auto scale these machines or kind of destroy these machines when uh, there was no tasks available. So minimum number of machines always running up for, for jobs to be kind of picked up and so on. That actually poses a problem because now we are paying for three or four or five VMs that are always on, which are not really doing anything, but then always available to run a job which makes it expensive for us. I think I understand the problem statement in general, and it's similar to what Kyler described in her episode. But Windows, man. Yeah, so with that, okay. <laughs> so from there, we actually had like a pool of Linux machines, a pool of Windows machines available to run these jobs. So the plan was, we can actually make everything containerized. We can have these tools installed on containers. You know, containers are right now, you know, they have a lot of functionality benefits and so on. We can host up to maybe 40, 50, or even more number of agents, just six or seven, uh, you know, container nodes, actually, like the host, which, which, which run the containers cluster. That, that gives us a huge cost benefit, like 40 agents available at any point of time, and you're only paying for six machines at the underlying fabric, it actually gives us a huge cost benefit. So that's one of the reasons why we wanted to go to containers. The other advantage of using containers in the scenario is all of these agents, like the DevOps agent from Azure DevOps or even the GitHub uh, agent, they actually have a flag which you can set it to only run one time. The endpoint of the pod is actually running the agent. So after the job is completed, the pod then destroys itself and then there's a new pod created because now we have a minimum number of pods required in the container. I feel like I'm missing something here about why Windows containers, though, because I haven't coming. heard anything that I'm couldn't have that. been done with Linux. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming to that. So, so, so Linux actually does a lot of good stuff nowadays. There's, there's no complaints against it. But then some of the traditional tools, like we you know the Visual Studio build tools, the SQL build tools, are still stuck on, on, on Windows-based machines. We can't move them to Linux. We've got to have Windows-based machines for them. There are some legacy DevOps tasks as well, which we still need to use with the Windows OS for. We, we can't go away from it. So while we still have a higher number of Linux usage, 
we, we got to support windows build agents as well for for those legacy jobs that, that, that got to run hence windows containers <laughs> Right. You can't just tell all the application developers, hey, uh, you're moving to .NET Core tomorrow. Uh, uh, yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't do that. I mean, I guess it's you difficult. could, but they would all yeah. leave <laughs> or just say no. Okay, so what was the build pipeline you had in place? We kind of went over that. What are you looking to create with those Windows containers for your build pipelines? The, the way we designed it was we wanted the Windows container to be the exact parity of the Windows VMs that we were getting. So at least for Visual Studio Code, Visual Studio, you know, SQL tools. So anything to do with the Windows-based OS that, that got to run Windows tools, like the custom Java version that got to be installed and so on. So our success criteria for that was to get Visual Studio, I think, 2017, 2019, and all of those installed along with one of the older versions, SQL build tools, and .NET Framework, .NET SDK, the SDK, and, and just a few more tools which actually support the application development uh, environment. Wow, man, that is, that's a lot of software and that software is not small. I know when I've installed Visual Studio on my you know computer in the past, it's been like, and I need 20 gigs of space to install this feature. <laughs> was that a concern when you were building out these, uh, these agents? Oh, for sure. So space was one of the smaller problems we had. So when we started kind of going down this route, um, I started to just pull the base 2019 image or 2019, I think, core image or something like that from Microsoft repositories and started to kind of get these tools installed. So the first challenge we ran into is, unlike a Packer build or like a traditional VM, we can't really restart these Docker process. You can't restart a machine. So .NET framework installation starts to fail. Visual Studio installation starts to fail because after the installation is completed, they want to restart themselves, which you cannot do in like in a Docker-based uh, world. Mm -hmm. So that was the first challenge. So then we had to switch to a different image, which already had .NET pre-baked into the image, uh, which again, Microsoft publishes. So from there, then you start to install more tools. Then you start to find out that Chocolatey is your best friend now. <laughs> <laughs> because chocolatey you can actually install so many tools along with it with you know with without restart option without you know with having to update all the environment variables and so on so the process goes like get the image install chocolatey install powershell uh, the newer versions like you know 7 and so on powershell core and so on and then after that uh, chocolatey starts to install visual studio 17 visual studio 19 and data tools and and some more add on tools like java and and so on and we're building the container that ends up in the repo or when the container is launched, it launches chocolatey and does all this other install once the container is instantiated. It's built and hosted in the repo. So it's not okay. like it's not installed on the launch. It's actually yeah. already pre-built. So th this really is a huge container then. It is huge, but it's much smaller than your traditional VM. The traditional VM packer builds take eight or 10 hours to complete. Uh, the, the same thing in, in, the, in this container world takes like maybe two or three hours to build. Yeah, when you're starting with a Packer image, that was probably, yeah, like you said, eight to 10 hours and yeah. I don't know, 60, 70 gig in, of space. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, shrinking that down two, two to three hours build time is not bad. Roughly how big were the container images? I think 2.5 gigs. Yeah, I, I, th I think around 2.5. I don't remember the exact number, but, but, but around 2.5 gigs is what we ended up with eventually. Wow, that I mean, that's definitely smaller than I would expect. <laughs> Okay, so when you're building these these agents, these images, are you also doing that build inside a pipeline? Yes, the Docker stuff runs within a pipeline. And that is the only place where we used to actually use public agents to run the Docker, the, the Windows Docker process to actually build up these images. 
once image is built it get pushed into our private azure the, the the container registry and from there the kubernetes cluster picks it up okay okay that makes sense right you're using acr to host those images but it's it has a private endpoint or can can it have a private endpoint i'm not sure you can have private endpoints on ACR, but in this scenario, since we were actually running the whole Docker process on a public agent, then we had like some fancy scripting built into the pipeline, which is to actually get the public IP address of that agent, you know, whitelisted on on the ACR, and then the public agent would have actually access to push it, and then it'll remove the the firewall entry and all that kind of stuff, and then and then and then the ACR is back again private. That was the only place we wish to do that. Yeah. Again, as I was mentioning earlier, so it's 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 not difficult to use public agents. Like it's it's not it's not impossible, but it's just difficult. Like you have to bake in all of these extra steps to actually change the firewall settings each time the pipeline runs and everything, which is which is painful to do. Gotcha. So, what would you say are were the main challenges you found when you were trying to set up that build agent uh, creation process? The biggest challenges we had was having multiple tools installed. Like Visual Studio, uh, that, that was not really the problem. But we started to go down route like having Java and Node.js and those kind of tools installed. They become very, very tricky to have multiple versions installed because they all try to install in the same path location and stuff. Mm. Um, you, have, you have to kind of tweak that. Uh, then after when you install it, you have to also actually update the environment variables. That becomes a challenge again in in the container world because it's not very easy to do that. You have to have very nice scripting around it. And then the overall process to build it, and it's at sometimes it crashes because the studio fails at some point of time. So the whole process actually is a, a bit challenging. Yeah, it sounds like it. Were you making multiple images that had different uh, software installed? So maybe this is the version that has Visual Studio 2017 and this version of Java? Or were you trying to put all the tools on one big image? Uh, we were actually trying to do everything in one big image. Maybe that was one of the issues we were running into. So we were actually hosting it for various teams to use. So we, we didn't want to go down the route of having multiple smaller images and then having to host them kind of independently, build them independently and so on. So we kind of wanted to mimic what we had in the VMs. Additionally, also tools such as uh, headless Chrome, Selenium drivers, all of them also have to be installed they actually become a very big challenge for us uh, because those tools need custom fonts and it's not easy to install custom fonts on a container image because you have to pull them from 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 Microsoft and then you have to download them. It's 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 a more challenging thing. So we wanted to kind of club everything to one image and just kind of keep the centralized image. And if, and if, and if teams wanted to add a tool, uh, the, the point was here here's Docker definition. You know, if, if you want to add a tool, just go contribute to this definition and you, you add a tool into it and it's available for you to use. That, that's what we wanted to kind of encourage the teams to do as well. And we soon ran into challenges where not all tools are supported on containers. Like you can't have WSL installed. Some team wanted to have Bash installed, WSL installed. Those all not supported on containers as, as of now. Yeah, because that uses uh, Hyper-V in the background. And I'm guessing Hyper-V won't run on Docker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah th those are challenging things, which kind of make it difficult to use containers in, in, in a build context for all jobs. And I want to back up on something you said, which was just wild to me, is you have to install custom fonts for an operating system that, for all intents and purposes, is not going to be using fonts at all. Yeah, so I think that's the that's the thing, right? When you get a container image, those images don't come with the fonts installed, unlike a full scale VM, like 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 so, so like a full scale OS OS image. So headless Chrome and Selenium they require certain kind of fonts to run, and they are not available. There is some PowerShell script which you can download and install and and so on, but it's it it, it kind of gets complicated. It's <laughs> it's not pre baked into the image. That's what I'm trying to say. 
Yeah, I don't know. It's wacky because fonts on a headless server, basically, it's like, why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Does this make the container fragile, Cy? Because it, you've, you've had to solve all these really unique and, and specific problems to get the container built successfully. Does it mean that you're constantly revisiting this thing because something broke, you know, three months later? For sure. So th something either breaks or, does it, or it becomes incompatible or a newer version of the job doesn't work because the newer tools be, need to be installed. It's more maintenance from an image point of view because not everything is properly installed like a full-scale VM. Right. And then you outright can't install this headless Chrome kind of tools. They just won't install because the fonts are missing. <laughs> then when you have the, the test cases running for, for web tests and stuff, those jobs don't run because they don't have headless Chrome installed. Mm. They don't have Selenium drivers installed. Looking to the positive side of things, what were some <laughs> of the successes you had out of adopting this Windows container model? Oh, cost was one big thing. Um, having agents available uh, at, at any given point of time to be able to run these jobs uh, and and having like less than, uh, I want to say less than a second wait time on build agents, on, on, on the build pipelines was a big thing for us. And we were able to have one AKS cluster that actually has both Linux and Windows node pools attached to it, like a maximum of six servers. Mm. And then I was able to have 40 different agents across multiple OS types available. If, if suppose this was a VM skit, so just imagine I would have actually had need to have like three or four scale set deployed, each of them having so many machines available, and then they have to scale up and so on. All of that was like gone. Um, we, we, had, we had a good success. We actually ran that for a lot of time with, with this kind of model. Okay. So the, the build agents, and you mentioned this before, I think, they're all running in Azure Kubernetes service, so on an AKS cluster. And then you mentioned you had Linux node pools for the Linux build agents and Windows node pools for the, the Windows agents. I haven't actually used uh, Windows node pools at all in AKS. Were there some challenges around using Windows hosts? I don't know if the challenges, but there were some gotchas though. Um, maybe it was for me because I'm not, I don't have a huge app dev background. So maybe it was more from me, for my learning. When working with Windows-based node pools, you have to actually tag all the nodes correctly and use the tags in your Kubernetes deployment. If you don't do that, the Kubernetes deployment actually picks up that image and tries to deploy it on any available node, like it could be Linux as well, and these pods don't start to come up then because of incompatibility. So that, that's one thing which was like, okay, I got you there. So you have to kind of tag your machines correctly and then use the tags correctly in your deployment as well, in, especially in your Kubernetes definition, mm -hmm. the, the kubectl apply definitions, um, the, the deployment.yaml config file. Mm -hmm. uh, other than that, it actually was pretty smooth. Like you, you can't really run an independent Kubernetes cluster, Windows Kubernetes cluster. You have to always have a have a Linux pool attached to it because Linux is where the controllers and everything get installed. And then your Windows pool is more like an add-on to the existing cluster. So, so in my scenario, rather than having two independent clusters and running almost like nine machines, get everything to one cluster one set of yaml file definitions actually get deployed on the linux side and one on the on, on all the windows one with the correct tags and everything get deployed on the windows nodes we pause the podcast for a couple of minutes to introduce sponsor strong dm's secure infrastructure access platform and if the, those words are meaningless StrongDM goes like this. You know how managing servers, network gear, cloud VPCs, databases, and so on, it's this horrifying mix of credentials that you saved in PuTTY and in super secure spreadsheets and SSH keys on thumb drives and that one doc in SharePoint you can never remember where it is? It sucks, right? StrongDM makes all that nasty mess go away. 
install the client on your workstation and authenticate. Policy syncs, and you get a list of infrastructure that you can hit. When you fire up a session, the client tunnels to the strong DM gateway, and the gateway is the middleman. You know, it, it's a proxy architecture. So the client hits the gateway, and the gateway hits the stuff you're trying to manage, but it's not just a simple proxy. It is a secure gateway. The StrongDM admin configures the gateway to control what resources users can access. The gateway also observes the connections and logs who is doing what, database queries and kubectl commands, etc. And that should make all the security folks happy. Life with StrongDM means you can reduce the volume of credentials you are tracking. If you're the human managing everyone's infrastructure access, you get better control over the infrastructure management plane. You can simplify firewall policy. You can centrally revoke someone's access to everything they had access to with just a click. StrongDM invites you to 100% doubt this ad and go sign up for a no BS demo. Do that at strongdm.com slash packetpushers. They suggested we say no BS, and if you review their website, that is kind of their whole attitude. They solve a problem you have, and they want you to demo their solution and prove to yourself it will work. StrongDM.com slash packet pushers and join other companies like Peloton, SoFi, Yext, and Chime. StrongDM.com slash packet pushers. And now, back to the podcast. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I knew that obviously the master nodes in the configuration, those are all running Linux because they have yeah. to. I didn't really think about the fact that the default node pool is going to be Linux as well. So you can scale it down to one, but you still need to have that one there. So. Yeah, you definitely got to have a Linux machine uh, with the with the Azure Kubernetes. Gotcha. So on the, on the application development team side, how did they go about selecting the proper agent to do their build? How did they differentiate between one Windows uh, agent or another? Uh, we actually had them nicely tagged. The agent pool names were actually kind of representative of what tools they used to run with. So if they wanted to run like the tools that we were actually offering as part of the container stuff, you know, they get tagged with like Visual Studio 2017 or stuff like that. And then they, they can actually call the pool definition within their YAML pipeline definitions. And the, the containers actually pick up the job and then run it. You made it pretty easy and straightforward for them to just plug right in and start using your build agents. Yeah. The advantage we had is all of the definitions actually can be fed into the Docker config itself and as part of the agent installation. So the container pod actually when coming up, it actually knows which agent pool to register to, whether it's a GitHub agent, whether it's, a, whether it's an Azure DevOps agent, what is it, you know, where to go, all the stuff's already baked into the Docker definition itself. So it's all pre-built into the image. There's no additional stuff that needs to be done as a spin-up time. That way we were able to reduce our spin-up times um, to, to a few, I think maybe like 90 seconds or something for all Windows machines. So unlike a traditional VM where it should have like at least a few minutes of spin-up time, I was able to get new agents, new pods registered and online within as soon as 90 to 120 seconds, like three to four minutes, we'll have so many more pods available. Mm. And the same thing in uh, for VMs is not possible. You, you only get one or two machines. Okay, so if a bunch of developer teams submitted build jobs all at the same time, you'd be able to scale out to handle that relatively quickly. Yes. So they're not just all waiting in line for the three machines that are running. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, when you were setting all this up, the Windows containers and the Windows hosts on AKS, did you find the documentation really good or did you have to reach out to the community a lot? Uh, no, documentation is really good. There are also some sample definitions from Microsoft on how the Docker file config should go for Windows containers. 
and there's a lot of already like on, on Stack Overflow and GitHub, there's a lot of comments about how these things, especially the Chrome headless stuff and all this, I, I got it from there. It's like, it's almost next to impossible to correctly do it. <laughs> okay. um, I, I think it's doable, but then you, you have to actually have the, the, the correct script, you have to actually have the fonts, all that kind of stuff correctly installed. Um, so that, that's where, you know, uh, it, it's, it's actually good documentation available from Microsoft and, and the community as well. It, it sort of ties into what we were talking about before the recording. Like some things are not documented well in Azure. I think we can all <laughs> acknowledge that. Uh, and I'm glad to hear this is not one of those cases. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and the best thing is, I think, you actually can contribute back, right? Like all of these are like uh, GitHub pages, which you can then, you know, make a PR and say, hey, you, you have you have some updates for documentation and stuff. So I, I, I like that part of all documentation. These are from Microsoft. So, so in case you find something missing or you or, or something's incorrectly defined because of older versions, uh, it's always great to just submit a PR and, and have them updated. When we were prepping for the show and I was all excited to talk about Windows containers and you're like, yeah, yeah, we did all this stuff. And then at, towards the end, you're like, and then we got rid of it and went back to Windows VMs. <laughs> so, yes. Can you talk a little bit about why that might be? So I think at, at, at some point we actually got to a stage where, so it wasn't practical enough to run VM scales along with Windows containers and again have Linux containers and everything run at the same time. And then we were unable to provide all the tools and the capabilities that the app teams wanted to run their pipelines with, which start to become a problem because then they start to use public agents or you start to get into trouble where, you know, they just have jobs waiting for our agents to come up and then do the jobs. And it kind of becomes a more challenge. And, and administratively, it becomes now I'm, I have to maintain a Packer definition, also a Docker definition, because I have two set of pools and one, of, one to do a specific set of tasks, other one to do a more wide variety of tasks and so on. So it's like, okay, let's scrap this whole you know, Windows container thing. Let's move back to the Packer-based VMs. That was one of the objectives. The other thing which we actually found out was Azure DevOps now supports auto-scaling and self-destruction of agents automatically. So they, they do oh. all of the stuff for you. So Azure DevOps, now you can actually say, hey, this is my VM scale set. This is a subscription that they are actually on. And this is the credentials for you to manage it. It will install the tools, it, it, it'll actually install the agent, it'll update the agent on a regular basis, it actually scales up, scales down the agents based on number of jobs waiting for that agent to run. So if you have the build pool and you only have three agents and you have like five jobs waiting, they kind of start to scale up to like seven or eight available agents available all the time. And then once the job is completed, the agents start to self-destruct themselves. So they clear up, they delete the VM, and the new one is spin up again. The whole cycle of what we are doing in containers is now baked into Azure DevOps by default. <laughs> so there's really no fun in doing this stuff. Like, like it was cutting edge, it was, it was all interesting, it was fun project for us to do, but then Microsoft kind of solved the problem for us in Azure DevOps, so we went back to the VM scale set. So now at any given point of time, even them having like 10 or 12 machines running, they only run for the job and they kind of go away after the job is completed. So once there are no jobs for like 30 or 40 minutes, the agents just go back to one or zero. You can go down completely. Well, you were talking about the container builds taking two to three hours and then the packer builds for the full VMs like eight or nine hours. You can live with that, it sounds like. We can live with that, but we, we, because we, we run most of our jobs like overnight, uh, every alternate day or, or, or kind of overnight, and we don't want to kind of take up the, the morning compute time with all the application themes and everything. So the challenge was not with the the time of the whole packer build but the challenge was maintaining it and updating it and you know the the cost kind of associated with it so we, we can definitely live with the, the the time to build up those tools especially with the advantage that now we are able to provide all the tools that microsoft provides 
The other thing is um, that Microsoft publishes their Packer definitions in a GitHub repo. You, you actually can download that latest tag and everything, and then you can actually build your own image based on the definition that they already pro provided, and then host it internally, and then use that to host your agent. So that way, app teams don't have an excuse like, hey, your tool, your build agent doesn't have this tool because yours is the same parity as what Microsoft is running. I, I don't think I realized that. So you're not writing these Packer templates from scratch. Oh, no. You're taking something Microsoft has already put together, and it's the same or, or similar to what their public build agents already had? That's what documentation at least says, that they uh, the tags that they provide with those Packer definitions is what they use within Azure DevOps and GitHub as well. So we, we take the same image, um, the, the same Packer definition, modify it a little bit, you know, with, with anything as an extra we want, and then and there's it. Part of the reason that you stopped using Windows containers was because there were still, I'm guessing, some application development teams that could never move to that model, correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it was, you still had to maintain the, the Windows VMs for some of the teams, plus you were doing the container images and Linux on top of that. <laughs> And, and as app teams started to move to more Docker-based builds, the Windows containers don't really run Docker as well. So running Docker within a Docker image is a little more challenging than than what it is. Maybe now on Linux you can do it to a certain degree, but Windows you still can't do it. What would the situation be where you'd want to run Docker in Docker? So if, if an app team wants to actually build a Docker image and then publish it for their application, yeah. now they are stuck. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so if they're doing a containerized application, they can't use your agent as a build agent because it's already a container. Exactly. Yeah, so that's <laughs> okay. another challenge. Okay, so in that case, they would use a, a Windows VM or a Linux VM to do that that image build process and, and publish it out. Okay. And uh, those, so the Windows VMs, the build agents that you move back to, those are now running inside your Azure subscriptions, inside a, a VNet that you control? Yeah, yeah, it's, they're all private, you know, VM scale sets um, within our own network, which then connect into the various other networks and then can, can perform the tasks that the teams actually define it to do. Okay, so in, in a sense, Microsoft is like, hey, I see you have all these problems. Here's a solution. You can stop, uh, you can stop duct taping things together for now. <laughs> But it's still not available for GitHub, though. So GitHub is still open. The auto-scaling part on GitHub is still, um, it's, it's not baked into the platform. There are some other tools and workarounds to do about it, but it's not as easy as what Azure DevOps provides us with. So on, uh -oh. on the GitHub side, you're still stuck with a static number of agents and manually, like, uh, when I say manually, I mean some scripted approach of scaling up and scaling down rather than how Azure DevOps gives it to us. Okay, is that tied to GitHub Actions? Doesn't have yes. that available? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so if you're using GitHub Actions, you don't have that functionality yet, but if you're using Azure DevOps pipelines, then you do. Yes. And you're using both? <laughs> we have, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we have a combination of GitHub as well as Azure DevOps uh, pipelines as well as GitHub Actions. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Why not? Any Jenkins going on in there too? Just for the fun of it? <laughs> Maybe a little GitLab CI. I don't know. I don't know what you're up to. Um, even though you ultimately went back to Windows VMs, I'm sure that you still gleaned some additional insight or some lessons learned or, or, or some additional knowledge from trying to use Windows containers. So what lessons did you learn that you could apply to future projects? Uh, I think 
the biggest takeaway would be is if if you have a static set of tools and a limited kind of jobs that you plan to run on the tools like if it's like a pipeline that's only going to do this like this version of visual studio this version of java and so on it's always good to have windows container if you have any lightweight jobs like i know, i know terraform runs on linux as well but terraform kind of jobs or any traditional powershell stuff which needs to run on on windows based powershell uh, the older versions of powershell and so on windows containers are really good in that aspect also documentation is very really good for microsoft so and and it's, and it's also a good starting curve like you know if you, if you want to really start off with containers and see what's going on and and get all the tools installed play around with it i think this is this is really a good nice project to do okay would you ever run windows containers locally the reason i tend to use containers locally is to try out a piece of software that i don't want to install or i need to spin up like three or four in a cluster to get them working together have you done something like that no, uh, no, no, not <laughs> really, not really, no. Um, so do you think Windows containers are a viable solution for some problems out there? It sounds like you had the one in particular, which is if you have a very limited static set of tools, is there any other reasons you think you would use Windows containers? I think from app dev point of view, it's always good to have a container versus a full-scale VM. So if they can get the application to run on, on a container, like even if it's an IIS server or something like that, if, if they can do on, on a container, why would they want to host a full-fledged VM? So containers do work. They, they do use, they kind of solve some use cases, but then I don't think it's suitable for everything. You can't just put bunch everything into containers and say, here you go, make it work. Yeah, the reasons you switched from container back to VM were pretty specific to your use case. You just had some problems that weren't really nicely solvable in the container form factor besides azure giving you the tools you needed anyway true so not only our use case but it's it, in general the whole build agent concept of running trying to run it on containers and trying to support all the tools all the versions and that's where containers become more of a problem right right they're meant to be lightweight and and small and if you, if you end up putting tons and tons of stuff on it then it just becomes kind of a nightmare to manage that image well, I mean, this has been a really interesting conversation. I'm glad to talk to someone who actually used Windows containers because I remember when they introduced them, God, that had to be like four or five years ago. And I thought to myself, but why? <laughs> <laughs> and it seems like, yeah, there are some realistic applications for it. I know this in the long term didn't work out for you, but it certainly filled a need for some period of time and others could use it simply for application development. So that's really interesting to know. Do you have any uh, key takeaways or things you want the audience to walk away hearing, I should say? <laughs> I think... Uh... <laughs> I think Windows containers works. They are real. Uh, they do have a good use case at, at you know for a set of tasks and everything. Uh, other than that, I think the takeaway which I can provide is um, the GitHub repository for Packer definition. So, so in, in case you're trying to host your own private agents within a network, uh, I would highly recommend not to kind of reinvent the wheel and try to install tools, everything. Uh, Packer definitions are all developed from Microsoft. Please review them, download them, and use that within your environment. All right. Uh, if folks want to know more about you, are you a, a social person? Do you blog or are you on Twitter? I, I blog on Medium. Not a lot, but I do blog on Medium and I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm available on asgr.medium.com and asgr86 on Twitter. Well, Sai Gunaranjan, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. And hey, listeners, stay tuned for a tech bite from Singtel that's coming up right after this. Welcome to the Tech Bytes portion of our episode. We're in a six-part series with Singtel about cloud networking. That is, 
how to make your existing wide area network communicate with cloud services in an effective way that maybe your legacy WAN isn't able to. Today is part four of six, and we're chatting with Mark Seabrook, Global Solutions Manager at Singtel regarding some customer problems where they've had large WANs deployed, but found those wide area networks insufficient because of their workloads found in public clouds. Mark, welcome back to Day 2 Cloud. You've got some customer stories, which are our favorites, to share with us, and we want to focus on the problems those customers were dealing with in this tech bite. You don't have to name names because I know that's a contentious thing to do, but could you first summarize the type of network your customers had, some sort of a large MPLS WAN, right? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of a lot of customers um, had global or used to have global MPLS networks. So uh, we would put out um, two or one MPLS leg per site, thousands of sites across the world. Um, one of the big problems when moving to the cloud is everything was routed back via regional private data centers. Uh, there was no local breakout. Um, no local internet breakout. So we had a lot of uh, issues with uh, SLA levels, for example, different parts of the world have def different SLAs and just overcoming that breakout at a local level flexibility. Right, right. So if I can paint a picture a little bit, you've got all these different sites that have a network coming back to a central location in their region. So if we're in the U.S., you know, everything's coming back to New York or something, and then it's going out to the Internet or to the cloud provider. And that's pretty inefficient from uh, from a routing perspective. So you're implementing something to change that? A lot of our customers' sites would have a single MPLS, and we would, over the years, we've introduced a DIA Internet circuit at each site. However, still didn't have the ability to monitor it and given like a 10,000 foot overview of what was going in across the globe or across the region. So Mark, like uh, you say DIA, direct internet access, as in they're pushing a lot of traffic just directly to and from the internet to get to their cloud services. And, you know, then the rest of it would be going over the MPLS. Yeah. So, I mean, when I say DIA, we're talking, yeah, dedicated internet access, however, a pure underlay. So unless you introduce uh, SD-WAN at the site level, um, with the orchestration at a regional level, you're not going to have any control over that DIA. So we got to we got to a stage where a lot of sites were pushing 70% of their traffic actually over the DIA, the internet pipe, as opposed to the MPLS, but we still didn't have any control over it. So by introducing uh, an SD-WAN across the network, we could control the, the local cloud breakout. We've got the orchestrator at a regional and a global level, and we can look at anything, any time, and tweak anything in real time anywhere across the world. So, okay, SD-WAN, as in now we've got an overlay on top of the MPLS circuit and the dedicated internet access circuit, and you can apply policy to that to have routing go over whichever circuit you want to meet whatever traffic forwarding criteria that you're looking for. Absolutely. Not only that, um, a lot of sites where we moved away from MPLS and we went to a dual uh, fiber internet solution, we could actually still give a MPLS-like SLA in various parts of the world just simply by the, the redundancy and the load balancing magic that happens on an SD-WAN. 
load balancing magic. I, I, love, I love the way that you put that in. <laughs> Definitely, uh, it sounds like an improvement over you know the MPLS and the separate DIA. Uh, were there some concerns, uh, either from security or privacy, when it came to moving from dedicated circuits and MPLS over to an SD-WAN type solution? Absolutely. So we have some government customers where. Uh, they'll probably never move away from a private MPLS or private layer two connectivity. However, for a lot of commercial customers, the, um, the IPsec tunnels, the security, the pointing, the internet breakouts through like a Zscaler, for example, um, soothes a lot of the fears that, that customers did have from going from an MPLS to a pure internet on a site level. Okay. So the, the customers that we're talking about, uh, they were looking to have additional control at the branch level. What, what types of things were they trying to control for? Or were they really just trying to get visibility and monitoring or, or, or both? Um, I'd say the first thing is the visibility and monitoring. So, you know, if you go to a, if you look at a traditional MPLS world with uh, regular routers at the CE level, um, there's really not a lot that you're monitoring um, minute by minute, day by day. Um, and especially if you go to an, in, an internet model where you don't have SD-WAN, uh, what you're pushing over that is kind of, um, your visibility is kind of limited. Um, so, the, I mean, one of the wonderful things about the SD-WAN solutions that we've rolled out is the, the orchestrator. Um, member of the cust the customer can blah, blah, blah. one of the wonderful things about the the mpls that we've rolled out is the orchestrator so from a global level you can go to one screen look at all your devices click on a device get into it um, look at all the tunnels look at exactly what's happening real time all your underlays um and so yeah. when you do that in, in the orchestrator, you get a sense of, uh, there's two things happening here. You're talking about the underlays. These are our physical circuits. And then the overlay, what the tunnels were actually pumping traffic through over the top of those circuits. But you have, via the orchestrator, a clear idea of what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. You can even like now down to uh, the bandwidth, what, what each tunnel's uh, running at. Um, the performance level, you can look at all your underlays. So you can look in parts of the world, you can pull up stats from parts of the world where DIAs are much more reliable than other parts of the world versus MPLS or layer two. Really what you can monitor is only limited by your imagination, to be honest. So Mark, talk about that, that monitoring. Another one of the advantages here that we're getting is being able to dynamically react to changing network circumstances. So at one moment, maybe the MPLS is going to be best performing for certain traffic and maybe DIA is best performing at other parts of, day, of the day, right? Yeah. I mean, with, for example, Silver Peak, um, it's doing that dynamically every second of the day. So if, you don't even have to worry about it. If you've got if, if the local edge connects uh, detects uh, some bandwidth fluctuations or some some jitter or some packet loss on a particular underlay, it will push traffic over um, over another link. It will use forward error correction, various tools to build up that kind of um, I call it a magic QoS. Um, <laughs> um, it, a way of, of establishing and maintaining that that MPLS 
SLA that you've enjoyed for years, but over a couple of different diverse internet circuits. Uh, okay, Magic QoS, as in, if it's going over DAA, you don't actually have hop-by-hop -hop control as you would with a true QoS system where you can tag the uh, the traffic with a DSCP value and then hop by hop, there's a behavior that's that packets to be to be treated in accordance with. We well, don't have that with the internet. It's a best effort transport. So how do you get a QoS like experience? Well, you monitor the behavior of the circuit end to end and then push traffic over the circuit that's going to deliver you the SLA you're looking for at any given moment in time. You're not guaranteeing behavior across the circuit, but since you know what the circuit's going to deliver to you, you can push traffic where it needs to go. So that, that's what you're getting with quote, magic QoS. It isn't actually QoS, but it, it ends up with a similar result. Yeah, correct. So, so basically, dynamically, we're monitoring, the box is monitoring from the site, all of the underlays, and in real time, it's moving traffic around across tunnels, across overlays. We also put out uh, Thousand Eyes Enterprise agents to a lot of our customers that go with our UCPE model. If you want to do some real deep dive diagnostics on some of the internet underlay, that the SD-WAN isn't giving you, you've got thousand eyes uh, to go back and take a look and fine tune stuff. One thing I also say, we do use uh, deterministic internet around the world. So we do have uh, internet providers around the world that are partners where we have tweaked um, routing at a BGP level to take more optimal routes that we can actually control. Okay, so that's actually manipulating your traffic forwarding in the underlay in certain circumstances? Correct. We've also, some of our MPLS nodes around the world, we've actually got internet breakouts. So you can point from a local DIA, say in the States, to our gateway, say in LA, and then it will jump on a private deterministic route back to somewhere in Asia. Okay, so that's almost like a cloud accelerator product that you might see in AWS or, or Azure, but this is, this is private. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, we also use that with our uh, IP Transit, our Sticks product. So, for example, if you was to point or connect to, uh, for example, let's just say our IP Transit node in San Jose, we will give you an SLA and deterministic routing, obviously, back to somewhere in Asia. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us, Mark. And hey, thanks to everybody out there for listening. This was just part four of a six-part series. So we're going to hear more on building cloud-ready networks with Singtel in upcoming episodes. Part five will be in a couple of weeks, and we'll be reviewing solutions in the Singtel catalog that will help you turn your legacy WAN into a cloud-ready network. Thank you to our guests for appearing on Day 2 Cloud and virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. Hit either of us up on Twitter at Day 2 Cloud Show, or you could fill out the form on my fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. Did you know that you don't have to scream into the technology void alone? The Packet Pushers Podcast Network has a free Slack group open to everyone. Visit packetpushers.net slash Slack and join. It's a marketing-free zone for engineers to chat, compare notes, tell war stories, and solve problems together. Packetpushers.net slash Slack. Until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.